This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We're in a series entitled Basics, and we're covering basically two different kinds of basics, those basics that we need to be reminded of, the kind that uh, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter talk about as being things that are, it's no trouble for them to remind us of these things. Oftentimes it's bound up with the gospel and implications of it. And the other kind of basics we're talking through uh, this summer are the forgotten fundamentals of the Christian faith, of the Christian church, forgotten fundamentals of the Christian church. So the next three Sundays, I'm going to be tackling those, three of those forgotten fundamentals of Christian faith and practice, of church practice, and they are baptism, church membership, and church discipline. Forgotten fundamentals of the Christian church. Today we're going to start with baptism. What is this funky practice in the church of, at least in our case, wheeling up a rectangular tub filled with water. If the heater has done its job, it's warm water. If not, it's startling. (laughs) Hearing and seeing people tell their story of coming to faith in Christ and then dunking them under the water, holding them there, eyes, nose, and mouth, and then bringing them back up. Soaking wet. What is this practice of baptism? Misunderstanding abounds concerning baptism. There was a story told of a former pastor, actually in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he recounts a story that kind of details this misunderstanding. He writes this. He says, our three-year-old daughter, Rena, sat with us during the baptismal service last Sunday night, which was a new experience for her. She exclaimed in surprise, why did he push that guy in the water? Why, Dad, why? My wife tried to explain briefly and quietly, but Rena wouldn't be satisfied. Later that night, we we tried to provide an answer that a child's mind, a three-year-old mind, could comprehend. And we talked about sin, and we told Rena that when people decide to live for Jesus, to follow Jesus, they want everybody to know. And we explained to her that the water symbolizes Jesus washing people from sin, and when they come out, they're, they're clean, and they're new, and they try to be good and live for him. And a moment later, we realized that we'd have work to do in explaining this, because she immediately responded, why didn't Pastor Bob just spank him instead? Baptism is the discarded jewel of Christian churches today. The discarded jewel. And we need to reclaim it for what it is. Andrew Fuller put it this way. He says, baptism is the boundary of visible Christianity. The boundary of visible Christianity. So if that's true, then baptism is of enormous consequence and ought to be placed higher up, perhaps, on the list of the church's priorities. We're going to look at three aspects to this. Baptism. Who is it for? Why do we do it? I'm going to close by answering two key questions. Who is it for? Why do we do it? 
And we're going to look at two key questions. First, who is it for? In short, baptism is for those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Baptism is for Christians. Christians in the biblical sense of the term. We looked at that a few weeks ago. What is a Christian? Now, why is that? Why is it? Why is that what baptism, who baptism is for? Well, in the New Testament, baptism ordinarily was packaged together with repentance and faith. Let me show you a smattering of verses that detail this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets done preaching the gospel to a large crowd that had gathered around him. And then we read this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. A little bit later in that same account, those who accepted his message, accepted in Acts especially, is a meaning of belief, another way to talk about belief or trust or faith, accepted his message, were baptized. Belief and baptism go together. In Acts chapter 8, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news, so the apostles had been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria because persecution broke out against them in Jerusalem. Philip was one that landed in Samaria and he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They believed this and were baptized. Believed and baptized, both men and women. Of course, you have the famous conversion story of Saul. Scales fell from Saul's eyes. It's more than just biological fact happening in this story. There's a symbolism in that. Spiritual sight has been given to Saul. In other words, he's a believer, a Christian. He got up and was baptized. Of course, you've got the story with the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. Acts chapter 18, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. In Paul retracing and recounting his story of coming to Christ, in Jerusalem, after he had been arrested, he was retelling the story and says to this crowd, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Repentance, faith, and baptism all go together. They all go together. Baptism is for those who have repented of their sin, Place their trust in Jesus for their salvation. Acts give us, gives us the normal practice of the first church. Now, there are places in Paul's letters where he unpacks the theological import of baptism. Let me show you a few of these verses. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 are incredibly important. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for... All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So a little grammatical syntactical work that we've got here. You see a little word for, it's a conjunction. It means that the thought started in verse 26, continues into verse 27. 
the two verses together constitute a thought unit. And here we're given a little more, a couple more pieces to the puzzle. Those who have been baptized have been incorporated into Christ. There is clearly in these verses a link, like a chain, among in Christ, faith, and baptism. You cannot pull those apart. They're all links in a chain. They're inseparably bound. Doug Moo, looking at this verse, comments, he says, faith is the only means of coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. However, baptism is more than simply a symbol of that new relationship. It is a capstone of the process by which one is converted and initiated into the church. As such, Paul can appeal to baptism as shorthand for the entire conversion experience. So baptism, Christian, is not an optional add-on. Baptism is for Christians, part and parcel with repentance and faith. Now, let's push this a little bit further. Because it seems to me the Apostle Paul assumed all Christians were baptized. He assumed this. A couple of different places. Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so there's a lot, lot going on there. Believers are urged to maintain the unity of the Spirit that they already enjoy as believers in Jesus Christ. The basis of this unity is explained in verses 4 to 6, where Paul identifies seven realities that believers have in common. Okay? It's the basis for seven realities that believers have in common. One of the realities held in common is one baptism. So Paul is assuming all the believers he's writing to, in this case in Ephesus, have been baptized. He's assuming that. Romans 6 is another place where I see him assuming this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So he's, he's writing to Rome, church in Rome, place he'd never been, and he simply takes for granted that all the Christians there have been baptized. It was not even in his mind that there could be unbaptized Christians. And we see this in verse 3 in two ways. First, because he simply explains why Christians can't go on living in sin by saying that the meaning of their baptism contradicts it. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Baptism means death with Christ. And those who are dead to sin don't go on living in it. And that means, according to Paul, all of us, all of us, that is, all of us Christians. 
The second way Paul shows that baptism was universally practiced and understood like this is in, the, in, in verse 3, these words, do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, surely you know this about baptism. Surely you know this. Why? Because this is basic. This is fundamental. This is an elementary teaching in the Christian life. All believers are baptized. And it has this meaning everywhere. All Christians were baptized. It's assumed. And the understanding of what it meant was so basic to the Christian life that Paul would be stunned if the Roman Christians did not know this. Look at it. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? In other words, the rhetorical question has the effect of saying, surely you know this. Surely you know this. And surely we should know. Surely all Christians here are baptized, and surely you all know what it signifies. Um, I would not at all be surprised if this is radical for a number of you. Uh, The New Testament teaching on baptism kind of gets filtered through lots of years of church history and various theological paradigms that we end up pasting on top of the text. So it sort of erodes at the edges. But this misunderstanding or this misconception of what baptism is about is, is a common thing. It's a very common thing in the American church today. Let me tell you one story of one gentleman who had this. Um, in my previous church, we, um, it was a very large church. So when we did baptisms, we had two uh, circular tubs at the front of the room. I don't know, eight feet in diameter or something like that. We did two because we would alternate doing baptisms because we were baptizing 30, 40, 50 people at a time. And so you'd, you'd alternate so you could get through them <laughs> and get everybody on their way. So you'd have one person in the tub here, the pastor's in there, perhaps pastor baptizes, right? They come up, then you got this one over here, right? You baptize, bring the person up. So I'm in this tub, okay? I've got a colleague who's doing this tub, okay? Whenever my colleague is baptizing somebody, I'm turning, I'm in the tub, right? I'm turning, I'm facing, I'm watching what's going on. And it's kind of a rapid clip, right? And it's kind of, the worship team is playing and the congregation is singing worship while we do all this. Okay, so it's, it's high energy stuff that's going on here. And, uh, and, and because of the nature, I didn't know all 15 people I was baptizing. They had gone through the process and other pastors had met with them. But I didn't have personal relationships with all those that were being baptized that day. And uh, so, on one particular instance, I'm watching, my back is to the person getting in the tub, and I'm watching what's happening over here. I turn, and there he is, six foot seven, (laughs) 290 pounds. Ordinarily, I would have met with him in advance to discuss our strategy. (laughs) It was too late now. So I said... Actually, what I initially said was, I looked up at him and I said, oh boy. <laughs> so I had him inch all the way to the edge because I knew I needed every inch of this tub to get this guy down. And uh, I, I said the words, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I brought him down. And the height of my victory was actually getting him under the water. <laughs> As I did that, it sent a tidal wave of water over the edge. <laughs> and it spilled all over the floor. And not only that, I went under too. And when I was under the water, I thought, 
what do I do? This guy's under two. I said, you know what? He's going to have to baptize himself. And, uh, and, and we'll just get on with this. And that's what happened. That's what happened. He baptized himself and he rebaptized me. Later, I came to find out that this guy had been a Christian for a number of years. And he had only recently come to an understanding of what the New Testament teaches about baptism. And he was a jolly giant of a man, a smiley, positive guy, 6'7", 290, smile on his face. He was just thrilled to death that he had discovered this is what the Bible teaches. He says, so what am I waiting for? Let's do it. It was a marvelous story. Wow, that's what it says. Well, then let's do this. Much like Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Why not? What am I waiting for? This is who it's for. Second, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Three reasons. Number one, to obey the command of Jesus. To obey the command of Jesus. That really should be enough. We could close in prayer now. To obey the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Here it is, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Let's do a little deeper dive into this. What's the context? The context is Jesus with his disciples after his death and resurrection. These are his disciples parting words to his closest followers. And in his final words before he departs, Jesus issues one command, that is to make disciples of all nations. And so Jesus requires his followers to summon others to follow him. In other words, disciples make disciples. Jesus then gives them three supporting instructions. First, we need to go. We need to go where the nations are. That may mean crossing an ocean or it may mean crossing your street. We have to go. Second, we baptize those who follow Christ. We baptize those who follow Christ. Third, we teach those who follow Christ to obey everything Jesus has commanded. So Jesus is saying we make disciples by baptizing believers and teaching them to obey everything he has commanded. So are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, you need to be baptized to show that. This is in fact what Jesus said. Bobby Jameson put it this way. He says, baptism formally and publicly enrolls a disciple in the school of Christ. Formally and publicly enrolls a disciple in the school of Christ. So why get baptized as part of repentance and faith to obey the command of Jesus? Second, to publicly profess faith in Jesus. Really see this all the way throughout. We see some of these verses that we looked at already, Acts chapter 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, public setting. This was no private setting. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized public setting, not a private setting. So you can see baptism publicly identifies someone as a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now this might be an ancillary cultural note, but these baptisms were done in bodies of water. 
In the ancient world, the hub of activity centered around water. If you were by water, it was, there was always activity happening around the water. Very, very busy place. Guaranteed, people were watching. Guaranteed. Now remember, baptism is something Jesus himself commanded. It was, this, it was as if he was giving us a very clear application of something he had said earlier. Matthew chapter 10, Therefore, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This is an application of baptism. No doubt in the ancient world, baptism did this. To those not familiar with baptism, it probably appeared to be a strange thing. But those who were being baptized knew its significance. Baptism is one way we acknowledge Jesus before others. Baptism is one way we acknowledge Jesus before others. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes this, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self Ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul's logic runs something like this. You have been spiritually circumcised. This circumcision took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with him. And this burial and resurrection with Christ happened when you were baptized. Notice how baptism and faith go hand in hand. So addressing a congregation of baptized Christians, Paul says that they were buried and raised with Christ in baptism. This logic explains the popular explanation that Paul uses baptism as a symbol of our death to the old life. When we're plunged beneath the water, You're dying to the old life and resurrection to new life when we're raised out of the water. Do you see how baptism is the discarded jewel of the church? It's one more reason to do this, and that is to commit to the church. To commit to the church, to obey the command of Christ, to publicly profess faith in him, and to commit to the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word, this is again Peter's story, preaching the gospel. People received the gospel. They believed the gospel. They said, what shall we do? He says, repent, be baptized. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here's the question. Added to what? 3,000 souls were added to what? The church. How were they added to the church? By receiving the word Peter preached and being baptized. By the way, this is most of what it means to be a church member. But we'll talk about that next week. So 3,000 were added to the church through faith and baptism. Then what did they do? Well, we can keep reading. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So repentance, faith, baptism is the means that God uses to add you to the church so that you may be a devoted, active, consistent, unwavering participant in the life of the church. You see, the scriptures don't teach degrees of Christian. First degree, second degree, third degree Christian. As in some Christians are serious, some aren't. The scriptures teach only one kind of Christian. Repentant, faith-filled, baptized, devoted, active, consistent, unwavering participant in the life of the church. See, being a Christian is not a hobby. It's an all-encompassing way of life. Baptism is one way we live out this all-encompassing way of life and demonstrate to others we belong to Jesus and as such, we're in with both feet on this all-encompassing way of life. Now, let me close by answering two common questions. Two common questions. First, what if I was baptized as an infant? Many Christian traditions practice infant baptism, uh, but they have radically different reasons for doing so. So not all church traditions that practice infant baptism have the same reason for doing so. One tradition teaches that baptism confers saving grace and removes the stain of original sin. That's a radically different understanding from what I've been showing you. Another tradition that practices infant baptism would point out that in the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with Abraham, He commanded Abraham to apply the sign of the covenant, circumcision, to his male children. And God never explicitly revoked or overturned this pattern of including the children of believers in the covenant community. Therefore, we should apply the sign of the covenant to them. In the new covenant, inaugurated by Jesus, the sign of entry is baptism. So they'll say churches should baptize infants. This particular understanding of infant baptism is not understood as conferring or guaranteeing salvation. Instead, it is seen as a sign of God's promise. Now, that argument has much to commend to it. I can understand why believers who are committed to the authority of Scripture would draw that conclusion. But I personally don't find it persuasive for a couple of reasons. First, there are no clear instances of infant baptism in the New Testament. None. Second, every facet of baptism's meaning, as we've looked at it today, presupposes the faith of the one being baptized. Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples and baptize those disciples. Baptism is a public profession of faith. In baptism, you commit to Christ and his people. All of these things, what baptism is, and that's something only a believer can and should do. 
So my counsel to you is this. If you have not been baptized as a believer, post-repentance and faith, you should be baptized. Second question. I've been a believer for a long time. Isn't it too late? Isn't it too late? Perhaps you've been pondering your infant baptism. Perhaps you simply never got around to it. Whatever the case, it's been decades, maybe, since you became a Christian. Doesn't mean, does that mean it's just too late? Too late in the game. Yes, ordinarily, repentance, faith, baptism, they all go together. But no, it doesn't mean it's too late. Whatever the reasons for not yet obeying Christ's command, none of those are good reasons for now refusing to be baptized. Jesus once told a parable of a man who had two sons. He told the first son to go work in his vineyard, but he refused. Later, he changed his mind and he went. When the man told his second son to go work in the vineyard, he said he would, but he didn't, ever. And Jesus asked, which of the two did the will of his father? The answer is obviously the first. Now, in context, Jesus' point was that many people live sinful lives for most of their days. But if they repent, they enter the kingdom ahead of those who reject Jesus entirely. But I think the principle extends to all those places where the New Testament calls us to obedience to Christ. Obedience in general. So when it comes to any of Christ's commands, late is much better than never. Now, undoubtedly, you have questions about this. This is why we have a baptism class. Pastor Dwayne is going to be leading this on August 15th during the 1045 service. We're praying for record attendance. Record attendance at a baptism class. Come, look at the scriptures again, ask your questions. And then this fall, we're going to have a baptism celebration on Sunday morning. I think the analogy of marriage can provide a helpful uh, comparison for understanding baptism and its relationship to other things. The process of getting married involves a number of components that are interrelated. They belong together. These usually include the saying of vows, the giving and exchanging of rings, the pronouncement of marriage, the signing of the license, the sexual consummation. If asked which component actually resulted in becoming married, how should one answer this question? Was it when you said your vows? Was it when you gave and received rings? Was it when the minister pronounced you husband and wife? Was it when the marriage license was signed? Was it when the sexual consummation took place? What if one of those went missing? What if vows were never said? A pronouncement never made? All these components are involved in getting married. They go together. In a similar way, repentance, faith, forgiveness, receiving the Spirit, baptism, all go together. Missionaries Elir and Kate Kami write this. For some years, we have worked with a ministry to refugees in Athens, Greece. Athens is part of the refugee highway 
where people come from around the world, pass through on the road to a better life. In May 2006, one of the missionaries in Athens, uh, Kali Skaif, reported what happened to an Iranian man identified just as M. In 2003, everything M knew was destroyed by an earthquake. He was tortured by the question of why something like this would happen. M went to live with relatives in Afghanistan, was married and had a daughter, but he was still filled with despair. Leaving his family behind, M headed west and ended up in Athens, staying with more relatives. Though he and all his family were Muslim, M became interested in Christianity, finding himself strangely moved by the sight of the crosses he saw decorating the Orthodox churches in the city. M was given a Bible and started reading. Since his relatives forbade such a thing, M used a tiny flashlight to read during the night after his uncles were asleep. He studied this Bible, his Bible this way for two years. Finally, M realized God was calling him to be born again. He contacted the refugee ministry center, declaring his faith in Christ and asking for more information. On Sunday, May 7th, 2006, M set his alarm for 6 a.m. He wanted to spend time reading his Bible and praying that morning because on that day he was to be baptized at a fellowship with other Iranian believers. But M's cousin had discovered the plan. Before M's alarm went off, the cousin boiled water in a saucepan and poured it on M while he was asleep, scalding legs and arms. M came to the baptism anyway. Standing before those gathered, the burns on his arms clearly visible, M declared, no matter what they do to me, I will love Jesus. After the baptism, M said he felt like standing in the center of the city of Athens, shouting to everybody, I belong to Christ. It's time for us to retrieve this discarded jewel of the Christian church and reclaim it for what the scriptures clearly teach it is. Let's pray. Lord, I know for some, baptism may seem like a trivial afterthought. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see the way in which your word speaks clearly to it. We want your word to retain its authority, and that means taking seriously even the details. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet been baptized as Christ followers. That you would allow them to see how your son has spoken into it. That obeying him would become a conviction. They would want to make their, um, their desire to follow Jesus a public known fact. That they may be part of a worshiping community wherein we help one another make it to the end. So we thank you for your word to us on this topic. Help us, I pray, to see it for what it is. That your church may be faithful, faithful, faithful to living out exactly those things you have prescribed for her. 
We ask this to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.